Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. From CNN Audio, this is The Assignment. I'm Audie Cornish. Okay, so we're debuting the second episode of The Assignment. We're still going to be publishing episodes every Thursday. We're still going to be talking with people whose lives intersect with the news. But given the consequences of this election season, I wanted to bring you another weekly episode that's just focused on politics, right? That isn't just daily headlines, isn't horse race, but really getting a chance to talk with reporters and producers who get the big themes and undercurrents of our politics. And we're kicking this off with the fundamentals, facts, specifically fact checkers. So there was this poll at Monmouth University that said that three out of 10 Americans actually still believe that Joe Biden only won the presidency because of widespread voter fraud. And I mean, this has just been debunked by an army of fact checkers. And I wanted to get a sense, why isn't this message getting through? Is it that people just don't want to believe it? And what does this mean going into this election season? Where do we go when even fact checkers aren't believed? So I'm bringing in CNN's senior reporter and fact checker, Daniel Dale, and Matthew Fasciani. He studies misinformation at the University of Notre Dame Computer Science and Engineering Department. Daniel, I want to start with you. One of the things we mentioned was that poll that found three out of 10 Americans still believe that there was major election fraud, that that is the reason why Joe Biden is in the White House. That is their perception. But one of the things I've been hearing a lot is like, Maybe fact-checking isn't working. Yeah. I, I, I push back against that. I feel like fact-checking is held to a standard that basically no other form of reporting is. Like, no one says, oh, okay, you did this investigative report about this company secretly dumping toxins in the river. But, you know, most people in the city don't live near the river. Most people don't really care. And so that's kind of pointless, isn't it? Like, no, like, first of all, facts have inherent value. Uh, you know, holding leaders accountable for telling the truth or not telling the truth is inherently valuable. And I think that there's always going to be a percentage of the population that does not care about, does not accept, does not believe. Matthew, is that true? Or are we hearing a fact checker doing some (laughs) desperate tap dancing here? Matthew? So there are experiments that do show that exposing people to fact check helps. So yes, that is true broadly. Like, yes, absolutely. Fact checking is important. It helps people get closer to the truth, and it's a good thing. However, yeah, as Daniel was saying, there, like, there are some people that it will not have an impact on, and this is where it goes into political identities. And whenever someone has a political identity and they read a fact check that conflicts with that political identity, then it may not be as effective. So they basically just reject it. Like they get to a certain point in the article and they say, oh, wait, this is getting a little bit too close to kind of who I am and what I believe. So is it... That the closer you are to the topic, the more likely you are to be super cautious of fact checks? So how I approach it is in terms of how important that identity is to the person. So if they really see themselves as this 
political identity that they hold. And that's really how they derive a lot of their self-esteem. And all of a sudden they read some information that conflicts with that important identity. Then it feels almost like a personal attack to read a fact check or just to read information that conflicts with that identity. And then they have this strong motivation to reject the information or the fact check they're being exposed to. So, Daniel, you're saying it's like we're being held to a higher standard. Yeah, I'm saying that we we shouldn't let the existence of a percentage of the population that may not care, may not accept what we write, we shouldn't let that deter us from doing it or or thinking that it's valuable. You know, it's not our job as reporters to affect the outcome of elections. It's to inform the electorate, inform the citizenry. But we know that presidential elections in this country, for example, you know, the last two have been decided by less than 100,000 votes each. So you don't have to reach, you know, 100% of the population to make a difference. We shouldn't say, oh, we didn't get our, you know, 100% of the people don't believe us. It's useless. You know, even if we can uh, persuade or get helpful corrective information to, you know, 10%, 5%, sometimes even 1%, you know, that can have a practical impact. So how do you respond to the people who think that fact checkers themselves are biased? And there's two kinds of people. I would say there are partisans who have a vested interest in any position to say, don't believe that other person. Yes. But then there's like the average person who pulls like a who watches the watchman kind of thing because they already don't trust any given organization that is putting out the fact check. I put the onus on us. I think it's it's, you know, we face the newsroom, us, the newsroom. I think uh, it's incumbent upon us to prove that we're correct. And so, you know, to bat a thousand in baseball terms, to not make errors, to provide evidence for our own assertions in the story. So that means, you know, provide hyperlinks when when we're on TV, you know, show an image or show as much text as we can from the primary document. So we, we can cry until we're blue in the face about, oh, people don't believe us. They think I'm biased. I'm so objective. You know, the fact is people on the left and the right, it's not just certainly not just Trump supporters, people of all kinds in all communities have distrust for the media for various reasons. And, and we have to work harder than ever to to show that we deserve some trust. What do you guys want to ask each other? I was actually going to interject. So, Daniel, this is Matthew. I was curious about how you can generate that trust. So you mentioned about trying to be more transparent. Do you think that would help to be more transparent with your methods? And then how can you showcase that at scale with lots of people? The, the scale thing is difficult. I think get transparent. Well, let's start with the first part. Yeah. What are your methods? Like, give an example. Something has been said in a speech. You get to work. What is that work? Sure. My fact-checking methods depend on what is said. In, in many cases, the, finding the, the truth is a matter of a simple Google search or two. Sometimes it requires digging into a, a, a newspaper archive or, you know, a, a database to find out a politician's past position, for example. Uh, sometimes it's a matter of calling a subject matter expert. And so it, it's a, basically like any kind of reporting, except instead of, you know, producing a feature article or, you know, a, a podcast, I am doing this research work to produce a fact check. But we talk on this show a lot about objectivity and understanding that there are subjective decisions we make in our reporting. Yes. I would never dispute for a second that there is subjectivity in reporting. There's certainly subjectivity in what I decide is worthy of a fact check article, you know, in how many false or misleading claims are made in Washington on a given day. I was going to say that. And is that why we're in trouble now? So, for instance, um, Derek Hunter, who's a writer on townhall.com columnist, super conservative site, he's criticized you for not using the word lie when discussing things that come from the White House and Joe Biden. 
the reason why I'm presenting that to you, it's not like I'm saying that's the most good faith argument, Mm -hmm. but that there are lots of ways as political reporters over the years, I sort of came to understand there are little omissions, sins of omissions, lies, obfuscations, paraphrases that don't quite meet the smell test that come out of politicians, period, full stop. And I feel like reporters over the years, we've kind of just been like, well, that's how politicians talk. And then Trump came along and just put it on steroids, and we felt a very, like, clutching the pearls. But hasn't there always been this kind of, like, I don't know, death by a thousand tiny fibs in political coverage in particular? Uh, Of course. I I would never claim that uh, Donald Trump invented political lying or presidential lying. Uh, To address the criticism from the town hall columnist, I'd like to note that I've gotten criticism throughout my time doing this work from both sides about showing restraint in using the word lie. I got that a ton when I was fact-checking President Trump because for the vast majority of the time, I say false claim rather than lie because I don't feel confident in many cases that I know the intent of, you know, was, was the president confused? Did he not know the answer here? Was that deliberate? I do argue, and I, I think I've become known for this, arguing that there are circumstances in which reporters, media outlets should use the word lie. That applies to presidents from from both parties. It's not like I've, uh, I use the word lie with Trump and I suddenly stop with Biden. No, I showed restraint with both presidents. I, I guess I'm curious to, to get to my second part of the question, that process of generating trust and just how, how we can do that. Like, how can we make the, the methods more interesting? Uh, and that's something I grapple with as a scientist, too, because I but feel like Matthew, that's the are really those important the things part. that actually make people susceptible? I mean, you talked about identity and social behaviors that are like wanting to match up with the people around you. Like, would it really make a difference if Daniel was like, this is how I did my job? I mean, what do you actually know about how people become attached to ideas that are not true? Yeah. So it wouldn't make a difference for people that are really strident in their identity. I don't think they would be in a space that would be open to learning about how a fact check is true. But my point is more about people more in the middle who would be open to it. And I think you can reach a lot of people that way who maybe are a little skeptical of institutions and just having that transparency would make them more trusting. So those are the people that you could reach. But yeah, for sure, the people who are really uh, stuck in their identity and really opposing anything that conflicts the, this with is it. Daniel, I, I wonder, you know, from the from the academic side, I'm sure you've delved deeper into the, the you know, research than I have. Are, are there things are, that, that you've seen that, that make a difference uh, in terms of making people more receptive to this kind of corrective information? Interpersonally, there are a few steps that you can definitely connect with a person. So... This is a challenge if you're at a platform, you might not have that close interpersonal connection. And that's really important if you want to try to have productive dialogue with someone. You want to be able to have mutual respect and relate to them in a lot of ways. So that is definitely a part of it is like relating to a common identity. That's something that can help people uh, be more open to information. But that's interesting because I think a lot of people listening do have someone in their lives that they argue with or debate with or that post information Mm -hmm. that is misinformation or just like deeply factually incorrect and they don't know how to engage. So I've researched uh, a few different ways and I've I've kind of got five steps that I I talk about. Five. Okay. Give me the bullets. People are going to be taking Uh, notes. hmm. Yeah. If we want to (laughs) go the five steps 
that I think can help have more productive conversations are respect, relate, reframe, revise, and repeat. So the five R's. Well, actually, the first couple I understand, right? The respect, et cetera. Yeah. What happens mm-hmm. when you get to reframe? Sure. Because that's when you start to insert. Someone might feel so, you're starting to insert just your own thoughts and biases. Reframing is trying to address their concerns and see where they're coming from. So if you're interested in connecting with someone about climate change, for example, they might be more interested in an economic perspective. So you might care about, okay, well, you know, climate change is important because uh, it harms the earth. Maybe that won't resonate with them as much, but you can say, okay, this is the way the economy is going, where there's going to be a lot of jobs and solar energy and uh, renewable energy, and you can take that approach. That's just one example of really trying to see where they are and what they care about and then meet them. And revise? So revise, that one is talking about revising your questions. So instead of just having this black and white discussion of, hey, you're wrong, no, I'm right, really trying to get more in the Socratic method of asking how they know what they know and how confident they are and creating this perspective of celebrating curiosity and getting that more in asking how they know what they know, even instead of why they think they know something. So really, again, going into the method and the step-by-step mechanism of how we got to our belief, that puts us in this more reflective mindset where we are more open to new information. I'm speaking with misinformation researcher Matthew Fasciani and CNN reporter Daniel Dale. We'll be back in a minute. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Apollo, the, the god of music, was also the god of medicine, right? So there, there's been a long time link between music and, and sound and health. That is my favorite fact of the month. <laughs> Apollo, the god of music, was also the god of medicine. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Let's explore the world we're living in every weekday with On Point from WBUR, Boston's NPR. Find and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Assignment. I'm Audie Cornish, and I'm here with CNN reporter Daniel Dale and misinformation researcher Matthew Fasciani, and we're trying to figure out how to be better fact checkers. Daniel, what did you actually hear in what Matthew said that you might connect with going forward. He talked about, you know, respect and the importance of building a kind of personal connection. And it's much harder 
as a reporter when you're trying to get information to, no. you know. We, we print out what you said if we're old or we forward what, what you've said, your fact check to someone else, right? Like you're our material that we take somewhere else to have the conversation, Matthew, that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Like you can't make it more personal from the CNN Twitter account or well, whatever. I think about uh, how I might be able to. And I, I have tried, for example, before I, I took a break from uh, from Twitter or X, as we now call it, because it's gotten uh, it's gotten a little messy. We can, can talk about terrible. That. It's terrible. It's gotten rough out there. Um, you know, I, I would do things like uh, rather than just, you know, posting, you know, fact checks all the time. I'd post pictures of my little my little Pomeranian. I'd talk about, you know, what I was doing on the weekend. I'd post about the NBA, things I was interested in. Partly just because I wanted to, but partly because I, I kind of felt like if readers could see me as like a full human, you know, trying his best rather than just like the mean fact check, you know, robot man, maybe that would help increase trust in what I did. I don't know if it if it worked, but it's something I've thought about for sure. So Elon Musk has been telling people that he gets his news from X rather than the mainstream media. He's also leaning harder into community notes as a means of fact checking. I want to ask you both how you feel about crowdsource style fact checking. First, you, Daniel, because it's like an alternative, right, means to what you do. And also you, Matthew, because... What we know about social behavior does not tell me that crowdsourcing always is ideal <laughs> for this kind of for this kind of thing. I found community notes, crowdsource fact checking, quite useful in many cases. I think it's particularly useful for certain kinds of things. Uh, you'll see during like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, a video that's actually from a video game being passed off as something from the conflict. When it's a discrete yes or no, I think the crowd is often very good. No, that's that's wrong. Where I've seen it sometimes go wrong, and, and to be fair, sometimes, you know, traditional conventional media fact checks also go wrong, is when it's more of a, a nuanced policy question that this crowd is trying to distill into like a couple of lines in a community note. You know, I found cases where, oh, that's not quite right, or I think they left out something important. So in general, I'm in favor, but I think people should uh, be skeptical of those as well in some cases. Yeah. So I think it, it's a really interesting idea. I think there's a lot of merit to it. I think it can be helpful. I also think it could be weaponized and used to spread disinformation, too, if, if you know enough people game the system. Not to be a downer here, but given what we know about the new blue check system, for example, over at X, there's a lot of bad actors who can just like pay to be verified and right. distribute whatever they want. And all I see are challenges ahead. Like all I see is somebody saying, no, this is a fact. Here's a clip of someone saying something and it's a deep fake AI generated news anchor saying something they didn't say, or a world leader saying something they didn't say. And I feel like these companies have actually shown less interest in caring about moderation and misinformation spreading. I, I completely agree. And at X, people are being paid for misinformation because they're being people who subscribe to Twitter Blue, some of them, you know, with this monetization program, they get money for the popularity of their posts, whether or not they're true. So there's a direct monetary incentive now to spread nonsense. I do not know what, what to or do. Or to about. outrage people, uh, right? Because yeah. that's what gets clicked. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's not good. It used to feel like there were a couple like big political falsehoods spreading on a given day and I'd debunk, you know, one or two things and feel like, oh, I like helped tamp down the misinformation on Twitter today. Now it's like there's like a hundred of more than a hundred. So it, it feels, it does feel kind of hopeless on that platform in particular. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, that's a big reason why I left X, formerly known as Twitter. The algorithm changes. I mean, the paid blue check we know is more likely to be right wing accounts. Basically, if you galvanize one side of the political spectrum and then give them a huge algorithm boost, you're going to massively change 
the ecosystem. And engagement trumps everything else. You basically get people saying outrageous things because, you know, we know that that's what gets people to click on them. And basically, we created an environment over there where sensationalism and misinformation are celebrated and rewarded. How do you each in your own personal life fact check? Meaning, as you're reading as people and you, we take in a lot of information, how do you actually approach it? Because in the next couple of days, <laughs> we're going to hear a lot, especially once the House and Congress is back and people start weighing in on the Middle East and they start weighing in on what the causes are, et cetera. We're just going to hear a lot of language that will not be true. So how, how are you going to be reading? So first step is a Google search. You know, is that statistic or claim corroborated by other sources? If I'm wondering about, you know, a, a headline or something or, or a report in, say, a, a left-wing outlet or a right-wing outlet, I'm wondering, are there other outlets that have reported the same thing? Are there difference in the nuances of the details that they reported? I think it's important for us, rather than, you know, bombarding readers with a million little fact checks, ask ourselves, what is the most important thing uh, going on today and how can I bring truth to bear on that? And so thinking hard about what is the main thrust, what, what are the main talking points from each side? You know, for a mm -hmm. long time, I was trying to fact check everything from Donald Trump. I did that for, for years. And I came to the point where I realized it is better to focus on quality and getting, you know, it can be a few key facts to people in a, in a given day rather than, you know, trying to correct 25 things in a given day. And so I'm trying to prioritize these days. In the media literacy research, there's this term called lateral reading, which I think is basically what Daniel's describing here is, is you think more laterally when you click on an article. So you open up the, the article and then you click on a tab you know, to see what the uh, source is from and, and how do other people talk about that source. So do people think that this source is reputable or not? Uh, is it biased or not? Is that author, do they have any financial interests or not? And you look at other articles that corroborate the article you're looking at instead of just looking vertically where you're only in that one article that you opened, it's really hard to do a lot of substantial fact-checking if you're only in that one space. So it's important to really corroborate it with lots of different sources. My favorite is primary information, yes, right? Primary. So like you're clicking on something and it takes mm -hmm. you to a place that's like, oh, here is uh, the document of the treaty of whatever. To me, that builds credibility. And this is a case going forward in the news where, yeah, follow a few links and figure out if what you're looking at makes sense. It is amazing how many articles do not include links to primary sources. Like, you can read so many articles about a heated uh, political debate about a piece of legislation and not see any links to what no the No link whatsoever. And, and yeah. so I've been asked on, on various yeah. occasions, like, let's do an explainer, you know, not like a fact check false, but like, you fact checker man explain in detail what this legislation says. And I'll try to, you know, cut my work short by saying, okay, what have other outlets, how have other outlets summarized this legislation? And the summaries can be so brief, so unhelpful. And so I'd encourage, like, you know, any media person listening to this, the more primary sources you can link to, the more helpful it is for everyone. Daniel Dale is a CNN reporter and fact checker. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Thank you. And Matthew Fasciani is a misinformation researcher at the University of Notre Dame. Thank you for sharing your time. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. And that's it for today. 
new episodes of The Assignment again. They're going to drop every Tuesday and Thursday. And since we're taking on politics, we really want questions from you. And there is no question too big or too small, right? That's what this show is for. So if you have an assignment, call us. Tell us what's on your mind. Our number is 202-854-8802. You can also hit me up on social media. We no, that's not what we're doing anymore. <laughs> and if you have an assignment for us, give us a call. Tell us what's on your mind. Our number is 202-854-8802. We might even use your voicemail in a future episode of the show. This episode of The Assignment, a production of CNN Audio, was produced by Taylor Galgano and Anna Sterla and Dan Bloom. Matt Martinez is the senior producer of our show. Our technical director is Dan DeZula. The executive producer of CNN Audio is Steve Lichtai. I'm Audie Cornish, and thank you for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.